So our series this semester is titled, Tell Me About the God You Don't Believe In, uh, which is actually uh, part of a quote from a New Testament scholar, a guy named N.T. Wright, um, quoted by a guy named Tim Keller, um, like both of those guys. Um, and the way N.T. Wright put it, the whole quote is actually this, tell me about the God you don't believe in, chances are I don't believe in that God either. Thought that was a, a, a good series for us to consider some of the barriers to faith and also some of the questions that plague us that um, at times even tempt us to walk away from faith and Christianity. And, and I think actually there are a lot of those things that uh, are in common, both the kinds of things that keep people from Christianity and also the kinds of things that people say, I just don't know about this anymore. And of course at Belmont, so many people have been raised in the Christian church, but I certainly don't presume that everybody here uh, would embrace that. Um, I expect there are people in all kinds of places in their spiritual journeys. Uh, but I think that these kinds of uh, issues are gonna be relevant to all of us. I, I really hope they will be. Um, it, it's probably no surprise to anybody who's here tonight that we are living in a difficult time uh, with regard to Christianity. Uh, when I was your age, you know, there were certain objections that people had to Christianity, but in general, people were like, well, that's fine, I'm glad you found something that works for you. I remember when Donald Trump got inaugurated, I don't remember how old you guys would have been back then, it was a little while ago, um, but there was a, a women's march that happened that coincided with that in DC, and there was a picture that floated around uh, on the internet of two women holding a sign and said this, if Mary had had an abortion, we wouldn't be in this mess. Now that's a very different context than, well, I'm glad you found something nice for you. I, I don't think we can assume, if you're a Christian in this room, I don't think you can assume anymore that most people in our culture are kindly disposed towards what you believe. Now, I know for a lot of people that puts them in a combative posture. Uh, I don't think that that's what we should be doing either, but I do think we need to look and we need to listen to these sorts of things, not just because of people outside of the family of faith, but even for those inside, because these are issues that we have to talk about, and so we will this semester. Now, we want RUF to be a place where both the Bible and your questions are taken seriously. You certainly don't have to agree with everything that we talk about in RUF. I don't think even most of our leaders would agree with everything that I believe. I actually am an ordained minister, so it's pretty easy to figure out what I believe because I had to take a vow that I agree with certain doctrinal statements, but nobody else in RUF has to do that. So you're free to be here, think what you want, question what you want, talk about what you want, um, and, and so as we look at this passage tonight, the reason I wanted to start with this, because there are a lot of common denominators in the stories I've heard. I've been doing RUF at Belmont uh, for 28 years, right? So in, in, in 28 years, there's a lot, there are a lot of students that I love dearly over the years that have turned away from the faith. And often I am privileged and honored to be able to hear their stories. And there are certain common denominators to these stories um, that I think we will hit on as we go through this semester. Um, I believe this text tonight in Isaiah 50 is a good place to start 
because Isaiah 50 is written to God's people, Israel. It speaks to them at a time when they are in the exile. Now, if you haven't taken understand the Bible or read the Bible much, you need to understand that the most devastating thing that happened to God's people in the Old Testament was being sent away from the promised land into exile. Not only was it difficult and many people died, not only had they been uprooted from their, their homeland, but they also had been removed from the temple and the place where they would meet with God and worship him. Most of you today don't think you need to have a particular place where you can meet with God and worship him, right? But for the Jews, that was a really big deal. So not only had they lost their land and their homes, they'd been uprooted, but they also, it had thrown a big wrench into even the question of how can we know God? How can we speak to God? How can we worship God, okay? So this is a passage that speaks to them in the midst of this horrific experience that raised all kinds of questions for them about God. Who is he? What is he like? And how does he treat the people that he calls his own? You see, to be human is to be narratival. We have story-shaped holes, story-shaped souls that are always trying to find meaning in what we're experiencing. All humans do this. The problem here in Isaiah 50, and I think the problem with a lot of people, a lot of us as we struggle with Christianity, is sometimes we construct a narrative based on incomplete information and jump to quick conclusions. Again, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I hope that this passage will be a way for us to ponder and consider whether some of our barriers to faith might actually be a result of a quick conclusion when we may actually need to stay curious to what God might be doing. And, and that's that hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow, is, is a, a hymn that's encouraging that. And I always tell people, like most people would say, yeah, I think the guy that wrote Amazing Grace understands Christianity. I mean, it's only the most popular hymn of all time, right? We're coming up on the 250th anniversary of that hymn, by the way, actually. Um, and, and yet he also wrote this hymn, I Ask the Lord, that is in virtually no hymnals and is rarely sung today. But it's also a very important hymn that, like Mikey said, raises the question about what do you think about God? What do you think he's like? What do you think you can expect from him? And for many people, I'm afraid to say, particularly people raised in good Bible-believing churches, they've put God in a little box and they often think of him more like a vending machine than a person. A vending machine who if you put in obedience and doing the right things, you get this predictable result and the kind of life you always wanted. And when we sing a song like that, it challenges that and says, actually, God might be doing something confusing out of his great love for his people. And Isaiah 50 is in line with that as well. Isaiah, Israel was in the kind of situation that has driven many people to the conclusion that God doesn't care about our suffering or is incapable to do anything about it. So I want us to read this passage. And then uh, we're going to go through this. Um, it's Isaiah chapter 50. 
Uh, if you have a Bible on your phone, uh, I'm going to read the ESV. It's not a long chapter. It's only 11 verses. Follow along. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors is it to you whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no one? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Now, this is an interesting passage because it sort of like starts here and then it goes over here and you're like, what just happened? Let me give you a little orientation before we dig into it. So. First, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking to his people in the exile. It was actually written before the exile, but from Isaiah 49 all the way to the end, chapter 66, these are words that Isaiah was given that he recorded for the people who would be in exile one day. Isaiah himself actually, tradition says, was put inside a hollow log and sawn in two. Doesn't sound very pleasant. Uh, there's a reference to that actually in Hebrews chapter 11. But these words were preserved by his disciples and they were spoken and given to comfort God's people in the exile. As a matter of fact, this is why chapter 49 starts, comfort, comfort ye my people, the old King James. All right, so the beginning are the, this God speaking to his people in exile and addressing not denying or denouncing or shaming what they're feeling, but bringing up questions that they need to ponder, saying, hold on, not so fast. There may be more to what's going on than you're considering. Then in verse four, it takes this shift. Now in Isaiah, there are a number of what are called servant songs. 
where the servant of the Lord speaks in a monologue. There's several of them. And, and theologians and the Jews themselves kind of wrestled over who is this servant of the Lord. Christians believe that the servant of the Lord is Christ himself. And that that is pointing to Jesus. And so we have first Isaiah speaking to the exiles. Then we have Jesus speaking. And it's one of the ways we know that part of what God is saying to the exiles is, hold on, don't jump to quick conclusions because the story is not over yet and you can have no idea what's coming. I know you're in exile now, but this isn't the end of the story. And then it ends with another exhortation about how then shall we live in light of both what God has said through Isaiah and through what the servant has said to us. Let me pray and then we will dig into this. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to behold wonderful things in your holy and errant word. Send your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this, I think what's interesting is the prophet gives voice to what they're feeling. And, and, and what he says is basically you're feeling divorced and you feel like you've been sold off. Now this is interesting. He doesn't deny this. He actually names what they're feeling, but then he raises some questions that would make them ponder whether what they're feeling is actually what's going on. See that? The people believe that they've been divorced from their God. Like I told you, they've been carried off into exile. They've been ripped away from their land. They are in a place where they feel like they're not even sure they can worship God. They can't offer sacrifices. The temple is nowhere near. And so they're in this incredibly difficult place that raises all these questions. They feel divorced. They feel like God has sold them off. To which God responds, not by saying, what are you what are you, you know, kind of buck up, come on, suck it up. He doesn't say that. He doesn't deny what they're feeling, but he wants to put it in a context to help them understand what you feel is not actually the heart of what's wrong. Actually, it's your interpretation of what you're feeling that's the real issue. Now, this is really interesting. You know, the, you might think, that suffering in and of itself is a barrier to faith. But actually, it isn't. A lot of the why it becomes a barrier to faith has to do with the narrative through which you interpret suffering. And I will tell you that the way modern people think about suffering is very different than the way people thought about suffering in ancient times. Now that doesn't mean that they're right and we're wrong, but it should at least give us pause to say, well, not everybody thinks common sense the same way about suffering. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis understood this phenomenon, and particularly the way modern people think differently than most people in the history of the world about suffering. He explained this in an essay called God in the Dock, which I think is an excellent essay and worth reading, God in the Dock is about how in the English court system, the defendant sits in a thing called the dock. This is where the defendant sits. So what he's getting at in this essay is how modern people 
instead of seeing themselves as being the ones who have to answer to God, modern people have basically switched things around and they think God is the one who has to answer for how he has ruled his world. We have put God in the dock. So here's the way Lewis sits it. He says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge, mankind. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench in the judge's seat and God is in the dock. Now to make things even more difficult, Lewis says, even, even beyond that, what happens is we tend to congregate and coalesce around people who believe the same things about this, and thus we isolate ourselves from anybody who might actually see or think differently. It makes it even more difficult than you see to consider whether our interpretation is flawed. But the fact that not everyone thinks common sense the same way about suffering and about where God sits and where we sit should at least give us pause to question what seems common sense. And here's one of the things I wanna say. Many people have called the kinds of things we're talking about this semester defeater beliefs. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Here's what a defeater belief is. A, belief, a defeater belief is a belief that you have that defeats other truth claims before they can even get out of the gate, before they can even be considered plausible. For instance, if I told you that when I was working on my message this afternoon, I looked out my window and I saw a fire-breathing dragon in my backyard. There's nobody here that's gonna take my testimony seriously and ask me questions about it because you have a defeater belief about fire-breathing dragons. And the point is, there are all kinds of defeater beliefs at work. They're at work in every culture. They're common sense. They don't even seem to be the kind of things that you should even question. And yet, different cultures have different defeater beliefs that sometimes actually contradict each other. And one of the most difficult things to do is to get these defeater beliefs up to the surface where you can actually examine them. That's what we're gonna to try to do this semester. Some of the things that just seem common sense to us need to be examined. And this is one of these. A good God could not, could not permit suffering. For many people, that rules out even considering Christianity. And I hear these sorts of things in stories I've heard. Right? Now, I'm not going to fully address that tonight. What I'm trying to do tonight is to say, not so fast. The way that we need to deal with defeater beliefs is to say, hold on, they're not as common sense as you might think. But the only way to do that is to name them and get them to the surface. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's saying, you feel divorced, but hold on. If you were actually divorced, you would have a certificate of divorce. Now, that may not make sense to, to you, but if you understood Israel law, if you were going to divorce your wife, you had to write it out and give her a certificate of divorce. So God is saying, if you really were divorced, you'd have a certificate. Where's your certificate? In other words, he's saying, 
don't just jump to conclusions because of how do you feel. Do you actually have evidence for this? Similarly, you think you've been sold off. Well, let's ponder that for a second. Does God actually owe anybody anything? Is God in debt to anybody where he would have to sell off his precious people? No. Not only that, he says, is my arm too short to save? Do I lack power? Do you remember who I am? So you see what he's doing. He's basically saying, you need to use the truth about what you know to come against the quick conclusion that you've jumped to. I know you feel divorced, but you're not. There's actually something else going on that explains your circumstances. And while you may think it's your circumstances that are the real problem, the reason the circumstances have made you feel like, or have made you conclude that you're divorced is because of a narrative you have about God. And it's a narrative that's not true because God is not capricious and God is not one who breaks his promises. Nor is God one who lacks power to save. But there is an explanation for why you're in the exile. The explanation is your sin. Now, this isn't all the Bible has to say about suffering, so please hear me. You are not, you are not to say anytime you're suffering, oh, it must be my sin. Nor are you to say that to other people, unless you have it written down in the Bible, okay? The Bible actually lays out lots of possible reasons why suffering might be happening, okay? And this isn't all the Bible has to say about suffering. But in this particular case, God says the reason that you are in exile is because when I came and I called for you, you didn't answer. And I don't know how you read those verses in verse two, but I read that as the broken heart of God on display. Why was there no one when I came, when I called? Why was there no one to answer? Did you believe that I couldn't save? Did you believe that I lacked power? Did you believe that I didn't care or I was incapable of doing something about it? Why didn't you answer me when I called? You didn't heed my call. And rather than the exile being proof that I've abandoned you, actually, the situation was so severe. Your turning away from me was so grievous to me and destructive for you that I had to use one of my greatest tools, confusion, even if it threatened to make you wonder what in the world I'm doing. Sometimes God has to use strong medicine. And he does it because he's a good God. He knows that when we put our trust in things other than him, it ultimately breaks us and wounds us. And he loves us too much to just let us run headlong into disaster. And sometimes he brings confusion into our life. This is what I meant about the, um, 
the, uh, I Asked the Lord and that, that song, you know, there's, there's one line in there that we actually changed and I wish we hadn't, but there, there's a line in that hymn that said, blasted my gourds. Now, I didn't know what that meant when we were recording that song. It didn't sound good. Blasted my gourds. Um, but that's because I wasn't somebody who read the King James Bible. John Newton, who wrote that hymn, he read the King James Bible. Do you know the Jonah story? You remember Jonah? Maybe you remember the basic outline of the story where Jonah basically is told uh, by God to go and preach the gospel to the people in Nineveh, and he doesn't want to do it. Why? Well, because the Ninevites were awful people. They were the Assyrians. The Assyrians would take people off into exile with giant fish hooks, you like driven through their mouths and they would chain them together. And they were awful people. And Jonah basically says, if I go announce destruction to them, because you would think, why wouldn't he want to utter destruction to them? But it's because he knows the character of God. He knows what God said through Jeremiah, that if ever I announce destruction and the people repent, then I will relent from the destruction that I have announced. And he said, I know you're merciful, God. And so even though you want me to go announce destruction in 40 days, God's going to destroy this place. I know that that might actually awaken them. They might repent and then they won't be destroyed. And I don't want that. So I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Right. And then God eventually, you know, through the fish and all the stuff, gets him to go preach and the Ninevites repent and God doesn't destroy them like he said. And then what happens? Jonah's mad and he wants to die. And he basically sits out in the hot sun and he's like baking in the sun, getting madder and madder. And then God says, look, I'm going to I'm going to send a plant. I'm going to grow this plant to give you shade. And then Jonah's like, oh, OK, great. Now now I'm at least comfortable. He's still mad, but he's comfortable. So then you know what God does? He sends a worm to eat the root of the plant and it shrivels up and it dies. Why? It's a weird story, right? Well, in the King James Bible, the plant is a gourd. And here's what's going on. Sometimes God gives us good gifts that distract us from him. Sometimes he actually takes away things that are pleasant because they're distracting us from pursuing him. And that's what that song is about. And that's what the Jonah story is about. So what should we do when we feel God has abandoned us? I think what this passage encourages us to do is to not dismiss the feeling, but also don't jump to quick conclusions, to stay curious and ponder the character of God. Because ultimately, guys, I believe that God wants our why questions to turn into who is a God like you questions. I think if you ever went like, you know, whitewater rafting or canoeing or tubing, and you kind of see those little eddy currents where you can kind of spin around and not actually get downstream. Sometimes you get caught in them. That's what why questions can become like sometimes. I'm not saying that they're inappropriate, but sometimes you can just circle round and around and around and never get to who is a God who loves his people enough to even bring confusion, to even make them want to curse his name because he loves us so much that he won't let us live oblivious to him in his ways. Who is a God like that? I mean, I like people to like me. God seems to love us enough that he doesn't always need us to like him. That's a pretty amazing thing. So often, I think that is what God's doing. This is a passage that's so important because it shows us that God might be doing something we don't yet understand. 
This is a passage that points us to the character of God, but also to one of the greatest reasons we have for not jumping to quick conclusions, and it's this. Ultimately, Israel in the exile, and even you here tonight, are in the middle of a story that's not yet over. The reason we should never jump to quick conclusions and think we figured out what God is doing and especially then decide that we are not interested in him because we don't like what he's doing, the reason we need to resist that and stay curious is because we're in a story that's not yet over. It was true of Israel, it's still true of us today. Look at this, this is the whole section uh, that, that it goes to next, the servant speaks. And the servant speaks in ways that we who live on the other side of the cross can look back and say, oh my gosh, they had no idea what was coming. But this whole section is filled with passages that the New Testament references to Jesus. Let me show you a few of them. Jesus is the servant who ultimately trusts God in the dark. He is the one who is not rebellious. Jesus put it in Luke's gospel that it is my meat and drink to do my Father's will. Do you see that in verse five, right? Morning, but the Lord God has opened my eyes. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. That is the words that Jesus said about himself. Why is this good news for us? because our salvation has been secured for one who did all that was required perfectly and from the heart. The servant is the one as well, in verse six, who suffers humiliating persecution, giving his back to those who struck him, his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard, ultimate humiliation for a Jewish man. And yet he doesn't shrink back from taking it. It goes on. He is the one who is sustained by his trust in the sovereign Lord. In verse 7, here it's the word, Lord God is the word Yahweh. It's the covenant personal name that God had revealed to his people. And do you know the Gospel of Luke has this little phrase several times. It says that once the disciples understood that he was the Messiah, you know what it says? It says that at that point, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem to die. Verse seven, right? I am the one who set my face like a flint. This is all about the story that is not yet finished. The reason you can trust God even in the exile is because they're part of an unfolding story, a story that is going to be greater than they could ever imagine. He will also endure a trial of false accusations, but ultimately he trusts the word of the Lord in the dark. Do you know what Jesus did on the cross? The first words that we have recorded, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that that's a quote? That's verse one of Psalm 22. Do you know what else Jesus says from the cross? It is finished. But it is finished, the Hebrew third person can also be, he has done it. Just how it's usually translated in most English translations. So you have Jesus, the gospels record, quoting the first verse and the last verse of Psalm 22. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's meditating on a psalm that utterly contradicts what he's experiencing. Because Psalm 22, Psalm 22 begins with, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then it shifts in the middle to this glorious picture of redemption and inheritance. It's a, it's a, it's a psalm that speaks about somebody being crucified before the Romans had even invented it, but then it turns into the inheritance that the one who's been crucified will receive. Hope. He's meditating on the hope that absolutely contradicts what he's experiencing. Who trusted the Lord in the dark, trusted his word? Jesus did. He holds on to a scripture that utterly contradicts what he's experiencing and his feeling of being forsaken. He trusts God's word in the dark. If you had been there on that first Good Friday watching the crucifixion, it would have looked like God wasn't working at all. But we know like the people in exile who thought that God was abandoning them, we know that God was doing his greatest work. Let me just conclude with this. How does this empower us to trust God even in the dark? When we have no light, we need to take what we do know of God and use it to do battle against our fear and our unbelief. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, said, the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. Now, it doesn't mean being afraid of God. Psalm 130, verse 4 said, because with you there is forgiveness, therefore I will fear you. Fearing God is not being afraid of him. And that's why I said that verse that we opened with, Isaiah 54, is so important. Our maker is our husband. God is not just the one who made us and says, here's how I made you to live which he does graciously tell us how we are to live. But then he also says, I'm the one who marries myself to you. If, you. if you grew up in a church that made you feel like the only kind of reason God would have a relationship with you is so you could be on his team and serve him, and you've missed that God loves you passionately and wants to marry himself to you, then I'm so sorry. But I know a lot of people that have grown up feeling like God is just a cosmic killjoy who just tells us what to do, like Santa Claus checking his list, who's naughty and nice. That's not the God I believe in. If you don't believe in that God, good. Because the God I believe in, the God of Israel, the God of, uh, of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob is the one who's our maker and our husband, right? And we have to learn how to use what God has revealed about who he is and stay curious, pondering what he might be doing. Um, let me just say this last thing. Paul references this passage as well, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight. Did you, did you recognize some of these verses? Who will condemn me? It's Christ Jesus who has died in my place. This story is the passage that Paul looks to. You know, people say that the, the Gospel of Romans, the Book of Romans, is like the, the Himalayas, and chapter eight is like Mount Everest. It, it's really one of the most encouraging chapters in the entire Bible for those who know Jesus. And it's all based on this passage. This passage. Why was Paul so convinced that we could have a relationship with God where we would never be put to shame, where we would never be abandoned, where nothing would separate us from the love of God, because that is what he declares so boldly in Romans 8, only because Jesus was abandoned and trusted God even in the midst of it. 
for his people. And that's the story we gather to, to enter into every week when we worship. If you go to church, that's the story that you enter into every time you partake of the Lord's Supper. It is the story that should forever give us pause when we think we've figured out what God is about. Because God is the most surprising of gods. How could we have ever imagined that he would give his only begotten son for people who had spit in his face? How could we have imagined that somebody like Jesus being persecuted, being tortured unjustly, would say to his own father, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. That's the God we have. That's the God that gives me perseverance even in the midst of not understanding what he's doing. That's ultimately what we need, is to have our eyes open to see Jesus more beautiful and believable, that would give us pause to say, yeah, I got God figured out. You don't have God figured out, neither do I. And there are so many things that make me uh, want to turn back from following God, there really are. But how can I when I see Jesus and who he is and what he did? Let me pray and then we're gonna close with one more song.